Greetings, good people. Welcome to Who Knows It's Just Life, the podcast. I'm your host, Kyle. I appreciate you for fitting me into your day today. Happy Black History Month. I know uh, it's early in the year, so if you have, if you forgot to celebrate Black History so far this year, I'm glad that Black History Month's right here in the beginning of the month, the beginning of the year, so that you can uh, remember to celebrate Black History throughout the rest of the year. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll be talking a little bit more about that in a little bit. But yeah, it's been a minute since I've been on. I really appreciate you know y'all sticking with me during this time. I'm gonna call this episode just recovery for a number of reasons. I'll get into that. And really, it's just going to be a slew of updates as I kind of just, you know, recap the last month, month or I guess five weeks since I, I last dropped an episode. Quite a bit has happened. And, you know, I'm just going to I'm just going to be real with y'all about a few of those things and uh, just yeah talk about what's been going on. Um, yeah. So. One thing that I definitely want to. Oh, so one thing that's true about this show that I've said over the over bunch of press episodes you know that we've done is that this is a learning experience right you know who knows it's just life is just you know it's just a a a public and in real time learning experience primarily focused on my learning Um, but if I have guests on obviously they're welcomed into that space and so the last episode I did was literally the, the evening of or the evening after the insurrection that took place on January 6th. And I was just a very raw take on how I was feeling that night. And I know a lot more has transpired in terms of what we learned about what exactly took place that day and who was involved and all the different factors of it. Um, and actually just earlier today, 45 was, uh, you know, acquitted of any, you know, from the Senate, they basically let him go on any insurrection or um, whatever the charge, the the charge they had on him for uh, inciting the riot or whatever, the impeachment, um, the second impeachment of him, they obviously let him go. So, you know, whatever. Um, But, but just so much has happened. And one of the things that I, I reacted to very strongly was, was the brother Eugene Goodman, who was who now you know now we know what he was doing but in that episode though I talked about him and I was how he was like backing away from the white mob and and I just I I was struck by the optical difference between what was happening in that scene as opposed to what happens when white cops are facing black people just the power dynamic um obviously it came out later that Eugene Goodman was expertly and heroically leading that mob away from people, you know, away from the senators and con- congresspersons and, and, you know, people that absolutely, you know, he was trying to protect. This is his job to protect. So he was bringing them up the stairs, like around to wherever nobody was, I guess, or something. So um, I want to give him a shout out because, you know, he's a hero and he, he did his thing. Um, so I applaud him for doing what he, what he did and doing his job. So many of the officers on the scene there did not do their jobs depending on how you think about their job. That's another thing. But Mr. Goodman, shout outs to you, man. You definitely did what you were supposed to do. You did you did you did a heroic thing. You put yourself on a line to save others. Um that mob I just you, you had a lot of courage to do what you did, bro. And and I and and I appreciate you and I I'm sorry that my initial reaction to that was seemed critical of you. Um, but in, in real time, that's how I, I I was just reacting to the to the 
the optics of it and, and I was I didn't realize what you were doing and so I just wanted to address that but that's part of what the show is about the show is about real-time learning and and that's just that's just the rawness of of what it is how this is gonna be <laughs> I'm gonna make mistakes I'm gonna say things that you know might be incorrect and I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge myself to try to correct those things whenever they happen and if I ever have a guest on here and I say something problematic you know that that you know based on their experience I expect them to check me so just that's just going to be a thing I'm a, I'm a, I'm a mess up I'm going to say things that aren't right or whatever based on whatever is going on so um yeah I just wanted to mention that another thing I wanted to mention is that I actually had covid um which was a thing <laughs> so I, I was kind of uh, isolated for 2 weeks and I was cleared over a week ago so it's been a while like you know and and my symptoms were pretty mild you know, I had a headache for one day. I've had a cough, you know, kind of much, pretty much since. The cop never really went away. It got better, but it didn't really go away. So forgive me if I if I cough a little bit here. Um, but, yeah, it was mild for me. I, I Thank God, you know, I, it was very mild for me. Um, it, it was it, like I had a little cough. I did lose my smell for a little bit, but um, that's a, <laughs> having smell is new because I just had surgery to fix my nose. So I smell had just gotten back. So that, that hasn't been a huge part of my life anyway. Um, but I think that's starting to come back too. That they said that can take a while to get back. Um, so yeah, it was, it, I, you know, if if it were any other time in, in my life, you know, the little bit of a cough that I had, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't have missed a beat. Like I wouldn't have stopped the day at work or anything like that. Um, I did feel a little bit of like restricted lung capacity for a little bit, which was interesting. Um, I, I kind of slowed down the exercising a little bit. I'm trying to get back to my ex- daily activity. Although that's been a little bit of a struggle still. Not not physically, but just getting back into the mentality of it. It's been been a little bit of a challenge. Um so yeah, so so the title of the episode is Recovery, partly because of that, partly because of just recovering from the, January sixth, you know, and, and just kind of healing from that personally. And and I think as a country we're we're doing that. But then for me also healing from COVID, like, you know, that's that was a thing. Um it was very weird to kinda, you know, <laughs> to, to have what feels like 21st century leprosy or whatever like oh you're the one you've got it like oh you know and, and being isolated and whatnot what I learned about myself though is that I actually like my own company um I actually like being in my house alone and and that, and I don't have time like that very often and um and and it was actually appreciative I was appreciative to have have that time and it, it was and I'm and I'm I'm really just blessed and fortunate that like my symptoms weren't that bad so I, I was literally just working from home just kind of relaxing you know and and that's that's not a not it's not something I'll, I'll give myself the luxury of doing and which reminds me of something that uh Re- that Resma Menicum said on on this uh, panel that I saw him on earlier this year where he said rest is a radical notion to the black body and that like hit me like a ton of bricks then and and I guess me having COVID and slowing down the way that I did, it proved that to me. Um, I mean, I have, I have a son, I have him half the time, I have him all the time. So, and that's, that's fun. Like, don't get me wrong. Like having him is a, is a blast. It's exhausting, but it's a blast. And, and, you know, obviously I, I love having him, you know, as much as I have him and, and all that. I also appreciate the rest too. When I, when I don't have him, of course he needs to be with mom too. So that's, that's, a, that's a thing. Um, but and so in this particular case with COVID, like, you know, I made sure that he was he was with his mom for for the whole time and he was not exposed to me while I while I was contagious. So during that whole two week period. Um, so that that sucked. I mean, it was it was it was rough not being around him. 
at the at the same but I was able to like video video chat with him a few times here and there or whatever so that that was useful and that was helpful for me just to kind of see the kid you know because I miss him but at the same time like just just that having that length of time like without him and just working from home not commuting and just being in my house by myself for for a length of time like that it was just healthy for me it felt felt good um and again that's only by the grace of having mild symptoms for real. So I, I'm just just appreciative for that experience, really. I mean, it's crazy to sound, it's crazy to say that, but I mean, it was, it just, it resonated with me. I learned a lot about myself through that experience. Um, and I guess, you know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, and in terms of like the vaccine now, I'm going to do this experiment where I get, I'm going to test myself for the antibodies and see how long that lasts. Because basically why I get the vaccine if, the, if I still have the antibodies after having had it. So I'm going to wait and see how long these antibodies last. And if they do go away at some point, okay, maybe I'll get the vaccine. But right now I'm chilling. I'm like, okay, well, I guess, uh, I guess, uh, I'm I'm good on that for for a little bit at least. Hopefully, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how this goes. But of course, then the, this is the other strain too, which is scary. So, I don't know. It's not like it's not like once you get once you get COVID and you, you're you're good. Like it's not like you just run out without a mask on and go to the COVID club and stuff like and just chill, whatever. Like, you know, it's not a thing. I mean, this is still this is still something that's you know out here and with the other strains. I mean, we still got to be careful. You know, I still got to do everything everybody else is doing beforehand anyway. So. um yeah, it's just the life we're living right now. But yeah, so on to Black History Month. Black History Month, I love it. I love Black History Month. I don't really do too much different necessarily in Black History Month. I might I might be a little bit more intentional with, with, with what I'm reading in terms of timing it for Black History Month. But really, if you look at my Goodreads, I'm reading black stuff all the time. Like I'm, re- I mean, it's, it, I'm a black, black history person just in general. I'm always trying to learn, so... Black History Month is just the time to focus on it even more, basically, for me. So that's what's kind of – but I love it. Like, And one of my favorite, favorite books in college was The Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson. And um, so I just I, – and so I, I was a student of his, you know, and I love that book. I love, you know, what he was what he was working on in terms of African-American history and life and all that. So, you know, just for those who don't know the history, like I know a lot of people are like, oh, why is Black History Month the shortest month of the year? Is that a conspiracy? Blah, blah, blah. No, it's not. Carter G. Woodson, uh, along with uh, Jesse E. Moreland, uh, founded the Association um, for the Study of Negro Life and History, which became the Association of uh, the Study of African-American Life and History, which is, uh, which, which is an organization that basically was all about, you know, te- like <laughs> installing black history in spaces, in educational spaces. And so he's, he started Negro History Week in February of 1926. And he timed it with the birth of Fred, uh, with Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln's birthdays. So he, he, that's, he was looking at historical significance um, you know, for, for when, when to have it. And it happened to be in February. So it's not some like conspiracy on the shortest month, whatever. Um, and and it eventually became Negro History Month, it became African American History Week, Black History. I'm sorry, um, Black History Month or whatever. And but but it's 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 interesting because Carter G. Wilson never intended it to last this long. If if, if he knew that Car- if he knew that Black History Month was still a thing in 2020, he'd be like, what the hell, man? Like y'all, that that was not the point. The point was to have Black History embedded into American history, the way he felt it should be. I know, you know. 
James Baldwin mentioned this. Uh, so many people have mentioned this. How like when you learn history, like you feel like like where am I? Where am I in this history? Like as a black person, anyway, you're like where where like something's like do I not exist in this country's history? Um, I, fortunately, my high school, I, I got a little bit more of that than than maybe the average person. I had a lot of black history teachers, even in even in maybe even in elementary school, but definitely in, definitely in middle school and high school, I had a, a, a plethora of black black. Uh, history teachers and white ones who also broke it down too so it wasn't even a thing like i learned about crispus addicts who's who's the first you know considered the first american casualty of the revolutionary war who's 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 black um and so all you know anyway i i, I got into all that i have an appreciation of all that and so carter g wilson kind of just kind of just taps that nerve for me and um and I, I love black history month for those who you know need this month to remind themselves to do some black history stuff cool like hey that's that's fine you know but uh, but i love that it's in february because that way it's like yeah make this a year-long thing for real like keep keep it going um and actually this also reminds me of something in college where uh there was a guy who wrote an op-ed in the in the college uh art the college newspaper the diamondback went to university of maryland and he he wrote this old article called Cultural Overkill or something like that, and it was basically the argument of like why is there a White History Month and all these cultural months and like you know the whole you know small violin about you know where's where's there's there any space for white men like blah blah blah. So we actually um, I think I was in SGA at student government at the time. I was the senior vice president of student government. I think that was that my junior year, yeah. I want to say, and so we had we we organized this huge town hall. It, it, it wasn't scheduled to be huge, but when we got all the like, we heard about the turnout, and it was like, man, a ton of people are coming. So we rented out the largest ballroom in the school in the in the student union, and had you know had mics, papers were there, and everything. It was it was a big thing. And granted, you know, this is pretty much before social media was a thing. Facebook was brand new, basically, um, so it wasn't really like a social media thing, but at the time it felt like a huge thing and so we had this whole dialogue and the guy who wrote the art the op-ed was there and all the all like i was affiliated with so many different groups that were like you know ethnically based like black the black group a native american group mixed you know mbsa mixed mixed multiracial biracial student association community roots which was just an activist organization that was multicultural i mean you know i had i had people running deep like representing a like the a wide range of different perspectives and people who all obviously understand the need to have focuses on certain people, you know, certain ethnicities, certain cultures and their impacts on, on this country because this country does a terrible job of just organically baking that into the history that we know. So anyway, <laughs> that was real dope to be a part of at college. I mean, that, that dude, I think he was embarrassed. I think he, he was, he was defensive a little bit, but he also, I mean, with, with the, with the, with the, the large amount of people and information that was shared i mean i think he was overwhelmed and hopefully he changed his mind i don't really remember i don't remember what his exact response was i think he might have come out with a second article kind of like reneging what he had already said or taking back what he had said and you know making it making it more of a you know being a little bit more inclusive of everybody or whatever which was cool yeah, so another thing that's been heavy on my mind has been what to do next as a person and as a people. And when I say as a people, I mean black people. Um, 
I've been involved with groups over the years, and more recently I've been involved with pursuing reparations because I, I see reparations for enslavement and the subsequent years after slavery, chattel slavery, as really the root cause. I, I see reparations as the, the, the amends to the true root cause of all the ills that we see today in terms of the racial dynamic and how that plays out economically, housing segregation, education, health, all those major areas really do stem from the legacy of chattel slavery and the, the, the years after. So I've been heavy with the rever- reparations and, and I'm still passionate about reparations, but I, you know, obviously that's a daunting task. It's, a, it's, you know, how likely is that really to happen now? And we got to spend trillions of dollars just to recover from COVID, COVID, uh, you know, COVID, COVID economy and stuff like that. I mean, you know, and, you know, there's a lot to consider with that right now. I still feel like strategically and, 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 you know, logically speaking that, that is, that is a very virtuous step, very essential and needed step that needs to be demanded on behalf of black Americans. But kind of secondarily to that topic I was thinking about history and the tactics black people have used so far to try to get freedom. And I was just, I was getting depressed to be honest with you. Like, and I need to study up on a couple of more of these, but I'm familiar with quite a few. But if you look at the very, I I, I see five major tactics that black people have tried for freedom, right? You talk about Booker T and segregated black capitalism, right? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, do, do, do what you can with what you got, you know, work with your hands, get an education, do that, build your own business, kind of do your own thing. Um, I don't care if we're, we're segregated, like, do, you know, let's do what we need to do with, our, with, with, with the materials and the, and the skills that we have. There was a lot, you know, I read Up From Slavery and he was on to a lot. Like, he had a lot of good things to say. Like, he lost me a little bit with the cast down your bucket where you are speech. That like the way he pitched that sounded different and hit different at that point. So I get why people kind of left his philosophy with that speech. I get that. But it's a crime that in, in, in my school, I talked about how good my school was in, in, in certain respect with black history. Where my school failed me, I think, is the fact is when I, I, I internalized the whole Booker T. Du Bois, Du Bois discussion as though Du Bois was correct. Booker T. was wrong. And I think that's a flaw. That is an absolute failure of my school system to teach it that way. Because first of all, they were they were decades apart. Like you know, Du Bois came so much later. Booker T. Washington was born a, born enslaved. So to compare them is is unfair. Just been in the decades that separate them. Um, but but there's there's logic and reasonable there's there's reasonable value in both of their tactics for real. But anyway, so if you think about Booker T's black segregated capitalist strategy for freedom and liberation, it was successful to a point. Like they, I mean, you know, Tuskegee kicked out how many black millionaires, black business owners, whatever. Like, and and the other uh, other HBCUs did the same. The Reconstruction era was was definitely. I mean, that was thirty years between the end of enslaved, uh, the end of chattel slavery, and the Supreme Court legalization of Jim Crow. There were 30 years between those from, from 1865 to 1896. So, I mean, that's, that's a, that's essentially, you know, it's not quite a career, but that's a long time for people to like build and stuff like that. And so, you know, 
and and I think you could you could say that that model hit its peak in around 1900 and probably into the 1910s 1920s and I would say it was ultimately obliterated with the Tulsa race riot and to be clear that's a race riot of white people against black people against a black community that was affluent and had, you know, again, all that, all the monikers of a successful black cap of, I shouldn't even say black, all the monikers of a successful capitalist system structure that was there in Tulsa and white people literally dropped bombs on it and killed hundreds of people. So, and granted, you know, I got into this discussion with some colleagues and they were like, yeah, but that was a hundred years ago. Like, you know, they wouldn't drop bombs on a, on a Greenwood now. And, I'm like, you're right, but would a greenie would even exist? I mean, and <laughs> I got to I gotta shout out uh, my professor, Jared Ball, again, because he, uh, he had Jonathan Hutto on there, who, who's affiliated with the uh, Prince George's County, Prince George's uh, People's Coalition in Prince George's County. And the, the episode that Dr. Jared Ball had Mr. Hutto on was basically, is, is there black power in America's richest black county? And at the end of the day, the answer was no, because... You you got a lot. I mean, Prince George's County is the most affluent black county in the country for sure. And so at that, it might be the most affluent black run, essentially black run jurisdiction potentially in the world. I don't know. I have to check that. But, you know, there's there's a lot more black businesses there per capita than any other part of the country. I want I believe I think that was in the podcast. I had to check that. Um, but, you know, police brutality is a terrible problem. The education system isn't very isn't good. I mean, there's there's a slew of problems with Prince George's County, and 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 I and I love being a part of this county. Like I I, I love it, but it's also alarming to see the lack of true progress that this county represents for Black people. In other words, it's not it doesn't it doesn't hold a candle to what was true in Rosewood, and and. And I'm and, and um sorry and Greenwood and Tulsa and all that like so that being the case like I don't even know if that's even possible anyway Booker T segregated black capitalism died in Tulsa was was annihilated in Tulsa violently by white people that's that's one cut to W B Du Bois and the whole integration idea. Actually, before I go to that one, I'm going to go to um, Marcus Garvey and, black, and uh, back to Africa, you know, nationalistic black, you know, going back to Africa type type mentality. He was the first unofficial t- target of the COINTELPRO program. Before COINTELPRO was a thing, he was targeted by the FBI and he was deported and he was basically ostracized and kicked out and disbanded and stripped of any power and organizational affiliations and everything. So, the whole back to Africa movement was, was squashed. Um, and he also had like a, a bit of a, a black capitalist kind of like ideal as well, like black buying power type thing too. Um, but I think what separates his ideals is, is the whole, is the, the, the legitimate attempt to have us go back home, back to the motherland. Um, and I shouldn't say back home. A lot of people don't feel like Africa's home, um, because of the traumas of slavery, which I get, but anyway, Garvey had the whole idea of having us return back to the motherland. That was un- snuffed out. Um, he was an enemy of the state, kicked out of the country. So socialists, I mean, uh, black, segregated black capitalism failed, back to Africa failed, Du Bois with integration. You know, thinking, oh, we need to 
up our education, you know, get get into the get integrated into politics, and then we'll start. Then we'll be able to run stuff and blah 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 blah. You know, civil rights movement basically ended the legal segregation of public facilities and a number of other facilities, and businesses followed suit and blah blah blah. Started integrating everything. Cut to oh, black president, president, you know, President Obama, black president, you know, and well, great, like this is arguably a culmination of Du Bois's ideas of integration and blah blah blah. And after eight years of Obama, you know, black people are still not really, not really, black people are still not free, right? Like people were talking, oh, you know, Obama's elected, post-racial America, post-racial nothing. Like how much really has changed for black people in in the eight years that Obama was president? Obama improved the lives of black people through the Affordable Care Act and a number of other things, but that is no different than any other white politician, white liberal politician who wants to, uh, you know, a, you know, rising tide lifts all boats type of thing. Like, so he he did help black people. I'm not saying he didn't help black people, but he didn't do anything extra. He didn't do anything that really truly helped us get any kind of freedom. And and I think the fact that this country is a white supremacist patriarchal system, it's foolish to even think that a black president could even do that. So I'm not even knocking President Obama for not doing something he should have done more of. It's foolish to even think that that would even do it. So so the whole integration idea left us empty or left us, you know, like, what was that all for? Because I don't think it got us where we needed to be. Then you go to, like, socialistic black revolution, radical revolution in terms, you know, multiple organizations were doing this, but I think the most iconic one is the Black Panther Party of Self-Defense. They ultimately were violently attacked and crushed by COINTELPRO formally and J. Edgar Hoover and and, and COINTELPRO and the local police forces that were working with them. And I'll talk about that when I get to the the Judas movie that just came out. Um, But yeah, so then, and then you, then you get into, um, the Nation of Islam, Black Nationalism, and that 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 uh, that concept as well as like a a a source of Black liberation. Hey, you don't have to like us, but just give us our nationhood, give us our self determination, give us our community, and we'll be good. And they've been marginalized too. Um, so, if you look at, excuse me, if you look at those five strategies: segregated Black capitalism, radical Black socialist revolution, integration back to Africa, and Black nationalism here in the states. All of those did not work. They were either thwarted violently and killed and annihilated, or they were just co-opted, deported, marginalized, and otherwise just ineffective. So that left me kind of depressed, kind of like, you know, what do we do now? And, you know, I guess one one of the things that I thankfully came across was the book My Grandmother's Hands by by, Res, by Resma Amenikum. And this was actually recommended by a therapist that I came across actually seeking therapy for my son. Um, she recommended that I, that I read that book. And I read it. I need to continue to go through the practices in it. But it completely shifted my mentality about what we need to do to heal this country, or at least a part of what we need to do to heal this country. It's about how we need to heal the trauma how we need to heal the trauma of the black experience in this country, and yes, how we need to heal the trauma of the white experience in this country because a lot of the traumas that were inflicted upon black people as enslaved or otherwise people in this country was misplaced trauma 
that white people brought here from Europe because Europe was a problematic, trauma-filled space and they were damn near refugees from that. And, and that's a stretch. I shouldn't call them refugees. But they, that was, they, I mean, they used to hang, draw, and quarter people over there and stuff. They had Salem witch trials here in the States. I mean, there's a lot of trauma that white people inflicted amongst themselves, for one. And then cut to slavery, like, I mean, are you kidding? Like, obviously, they inflicted a ton of trauma on, on the black body and the black people. So, you know, th- so this book really centers healing this country from a racial, social, and economic standpoint on healing the trauma, which is deep within our bodies. Our bodies are feeling this trauma. And, and I, to me, I want to dive, dive into that more, more fully. Um, I want to talk more to therapists about this and you know, kind of try to start building on that as a topic and a tactic for liberation. Because um, other things, I, like I said, I feel like they've failed. And all these people are like, oh, buy black businesses, support black business. Nah, bro. Like that's not gonna do it. I'm sorry. Like the whole um, my, my professor wrote a book, the myth of black buying, the myth and propaganda of black buying power. Like that's not really a, like it, that. That's not really a tool for liberation. Like that's a tool for survival in the meantime. But being black capitalist isn't gonna save us from this the the, the struggles that we're in. And Fred Hampton talked about that, and you can see that. You can. See, well, I'll get into that a little bit later too. Um. So yeah, I've been getting involved a little bit more. I mentioned I mentioned the episode that my that um, my professor Dr. Jared Ball did with Jonathan Hutto. I actually attended uh, the Prince George's County, the Prince George's People's Coalition's uh, January meeting. So that was my first time getting involved in that organization. I definitely want to stay involved in more local politics. And they, there's a lot going on in Maryland state politics right now in terms of uh, fixing, uh, not fixing. I say reforming some basic reforms of the police. Um, systems here in the states, here in the state of Maryland, um, and some local things in the Prince George's County as well. So it, it was exciting to be tapped into some of that. I actually um, emailed my state. Two, two of my three state delegates are not pledged to support the police reforms that are being proposed. One of them had, one of them did. The two white ones didn't. Interestingly enough. Um, so anyway, I emailed them, and I plan to follow up on how that's been, how that's going to go too. Um, another fun thing that I do every year is I celebrate Bob Marley's birthday. Bob Marley's just one of those people that I just love. You know, um, his music was revolutionary. It was it was timely, it's still timely to this day. But it's also music that made you feel good, and that's rare. A lot of times, music that's that's topical makes you think about all the problems in the world. You know, it, 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 the music itself sonically is just like intense, and it's like damn, like shit, just, just, shit's messed up kind of thing. Um, but Bob Marley just was a was a genius at transcending, and I, I shouldn't just say Bob Marley, but the Whalers, Peter Tosh, the whole team, they were just they were just brilliant at blending necessary and impactful topics with with just good vibes for real. So celebrate Bob Marley's birthday. Um, Avery and I usually get you know cupcakes, and you know sometimes we get Jamaican food, sometimes we get you know we just get some kind of some kind of food and commemorate Bob Marley's birthday and bump Bob Marley all day. Again, Bob Marley plays in my house all the damn time, but. Best believe on his birthday, I'm going I'm to I'm I'm play some Bob Marley. So, um, and that's another thing, too. This, this occurred to me when, when, when everybody, when all the white people came out after George Floyd was killed and Breonna Taylor were killed, you know, in the summer. And so many people were like, white people were like, yo, man, I had no idea. Like, this stuff is so messed up. Like, black people, uh, cops are killing black people and stuff like that. You know, and I feel like there's been other re- moments of reckoning, like, you know, after Rodney King and some other incidents that, you know, white people kind of were turned a little bit more on to the, the truth of what's been going on. But it just felt like that hit another degree of 
realization and impact and, and activism on behalf of white people this past summer. And it occurred to me, I was like, didn't you or your parents like the, sh- like the song I Shot the Sheriff by Bob Marley? Don't y'all love Bob Marley? Like, what do you think I Shot the Sheriff was about? Like, it's literally about self-defense because cops kill us. <laughs> like, I, like, do y'all just like hear the music and just like like to move your bodies to it and stuff like that and just be like, oh, this makes me feel good. Like, if that's the case, that's fine. But like, damn, like, Bob Marley is such a prolific international phenomenon. He been hip, he was hip to the, he was hipping us to this like fifty years ago. So. I don't know. I'm just confused. But anyway, so happy happy belated birthday to Bob Marley. Uh, man, I, I, shit, I wish that man was still alive, among others, shit, for sure. consuming some media recently part of being slowed down after having covid i you know i was able to sit sit down and watch some stuff i'm I'm not a big watcher of much of anything um but everybody's been saying oh gotta gotta watch queen sugar gotta watch lovecraft country gotta watch this that the third so you know i've been i've been trying to catch up on queen sugar i finished queen sugar finally um and i know the next season's about to come out i think in a week or two maybe maybe uh, it's coming up week i think and so i finally caught up on that and I appreciate Queen Sugar. I read the book and I tried watching the show and the book, the show was so much different than the book. I was turned off. I didn't like it. Like the whole Nova, Nova borderline, she didn't exist in the book. Not at all. Michael was a girl. There's so many key differences. I was just like, I don't know what this is. But so many people told me, just watch the show. The show is still good. Let it be what it is. So <laughs> maybe I just waited long enough since I read the book to be able to appreciate the show. The show is good. I do like the show for what it is. One thing I really take from the show is how it portrays black masculinity I think there are a lot of positive examples of black masculinity. You see Hollywood be a very strong and def- defending person in a, in a traditional masculine way, in a traditional male way. Um, but he's also very um, sensitive and nurturing and caring to Aunt Vi as, as a partner. And there's times where she challenges him and his idea of, of a manhood. He wanted her to take his name um, when they get married and stuff like that. And he had a moment where he was like, that's a big deal for me. But then he thought through it, he talked about it with his mom. And he came around to it. So you see him have very male, masculine ideas and thoughts, but he's able to process and move through things in a very healthy way. And I think his example in the show is very powerful to see. I think he's a very strong character that, that you know, is just, is just a character. He, he's a character. He's, he's, a, he's a depiction of masculinity in general, but specifically black masculinity that I think you know, myself and others can certainly aspire to. Ralph Angel, he obviously didn't start off that way anywhere near close. I mean, he's, he, you know, he made a lot of terrible choices. He, you know, I, you know, I don't need to go into all that history, but, you know, he eventually though starts to learn some of that emotional intelligence, starts to learn, you know, how to, how to be, how to be supportive, how to, how to process through things in a more healthy way. Um, so I, I can appreciate his kind of maturation throughout the, sh- the show so far. 
Um, even though he still he still kind of trips up every once in a while. You know, he, he takes things very emotionally. He has a very outwardly emotional response to a lot of things. But I feel like that's also real. Like so that's partly, you know, a response to his own experiences. That's a partly response to the traumas that he's lived in his life. Um, so yeah, I just think that his depiction and his growth is also, you know, admirable as well in its own right. One of my favorite scenes of the of this of the entire show really was when he finally got his letter that he's released off parole. And he just started running in the cane fields and just like yelled and screamed like at it because he was free. That moment, thank God, like I haven't I haven't had any experiences in in the in the system. Right? I haven't been locked up or anything like that. Um, and 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 that's partly due to my privilege and where I came, where I grew up and how I grew up. And so I'm not I'm not I'm I'm aware of that and I'm thankful for that. Um, I'm also a student of the system. And the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander made it abundantly clear for me that it's not just the 2.2 million people who are physically incarcerated right now, but it's the te- it's the tens of millions of people who still are dealing with parole, the parole process. They're still dealing with so many levels of social control um, and and really like a subcast system, a subcast type treatment in this country because of prior convictions of whatever, of varying degrees. And so showing him like kind of live under with that cloud over his head, pretty much the entire show. And then to see him finally get released. And I guess I would have been the fourth season. Um, to me, that was just a powerful moment to me. And there's so much else in the show. That's really good. I, that moment for whatever reason, is just like, I just really felt that energy in that moment. Like that, like, the actor really killed that moment. Um, so that's, that's join us tight. Um, Lovecraft country. I read that book too. I like the book. I'm, I'm almost halfway through the show. So I'll maybe talk more about that when I'm finished with that one. Um, I also watched one night in Miami and I just watched Judas and the black Messiah. So I'll start with one night in Miami. This movie might be one of my, might might have cracked like the all time favorites list, like maybe in top five, top ten for sh- probably top ten. I don't know about top five, maybe top five. Um, and and it's I'm a, I'm gonna preface this with saying that this movie is a fiction. It's a myth. It's not. This is not. This is not a real story, right? What what is true about the story is that these four men were friends. They did hang out at a at a hotel that night in Miami. But we know nothing about what they talked about. Like, we don't know anything. We don't know what they talked about. So approaching the movie from the standpoint that this is made up, like the, the, actual, the dialogue is made up, accepting that as it is, I love it because it depicts these four iconic figures in history and culture as people. About, I'm very passionate about that because we put we put like Dr. King on a pedestal. We put like various people on pedestals, and everybody talking about Ali's the goat. Man, people hated Ali when he was when he was big. Like people hated him. Um, so I, you know, given given decades and and after people pass away and stuff like people, everybody comes around and likes people and puts them on a pedestal. Nah, that's not history, and that's not humanity either. So this movie showed real conflict between these people between Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, Jim Brown, and Muhammad Ali. 
And I felt that. Like, I, I've been in rooms like that. I've been in rooms where, like, <laughs> they talked about Malcolm X being the buzzkill. Like, how, you know, he's like, oh, we're not drinking. We're not going out partying. We're not getting any ladies or whatever. In college, I didn't drink. So I kind of had I kind of had I kind of had that buzzkill energy sometimes in college. Like I, I was in those rooms with like other brothers and we were just chilling, kicking it, whatever. They might have been smoking or drinking and I wasn't having any of that. And sometimes that was a buzzkill. They're like, come on, man, like just partake. And I was just like, no, nah, I'm good. Like, but I, I, I think I was in those experiences enough to like not make it uncomfortable. But sometimes people might, might still have felt a kind of way about it. So and, and I'm also the one that's always talking politics like, I, you know, I was in the Black City Union like early in college, like I was in the, the executive board freshman year, I want to say. And they called me, uh, they called me Bruce Banner because I was like, they was like, you always make things militant. And it's not always got to be militant. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, so I, I but anyway, so I, I felt that movie like I, I feel like Sam Cooke's ideas of like, oh, you know, but I own part of the Beatles. I control the Beatles. Like it, there's power in economics and da 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 da. Like, you know, how much power do you really have, Malcolm? You know, whatever. And and that's real to an extent, but at the end of the day, like he, without a white audience, who is Sam Cooke? You know, so if if he slips up, like he 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 loses his influence that he thinks he has. You know, so he has to he has to placate to an extent. And, and to what extent does that are you? To what extent does that placate placating make you uncomfortable or make you a sellout or whatever? Hey, no man can no no nobody on the outside can really judge that. It's a, it's it's for each individual person to figure out where that line is for them. Um, and I mean Jim Brown like making a stand that he did in terms of like the NFL, like leaving the NFL to do acting and <laughs> acting in westerns, like was like kind of not the best thing. But it's also like, hey, I mean it's paying me a crap ton of money and you know, and I'm not killing my body for these white people in the NFL. So like, you know, he made a move that he felt was right for himself. So, um, and then of course Ali, you know, he was the youngest of the group, which I think, you know, shouldn't be ignored. Uh, Malcolm X was 39 at that, that night. Um, Sam Cooke was 33. Jim Brown was 28 and Ali was only 22. So, you know, I think that's, that's important to keep in mind. He was by far the youngest of the group. And, um, I don't know, just that whole, just the whole dynamic of their interaction to me was just outstanding. It's fictitious, it's fictional, but it's outstanding. Like from what we know about these men, that conversation was believable to an extent, but even if it never happened and we assuming that it never happened, it's still reflective of actual conversations that black men have. It's it's reflective of relationships that black men have, because I mean, like I said, I've I've experienced fractions of that of those types of conversations in my own life, and me nor my friends are at the level of of you know influence political cultural influences these four men, but that's how it resonates. And so I bang with that movie hard, I really do. Last one. So as far as Judas and the Black Messiah. <sighs> If y'all have heard other episodes, particularly the December 4th, 1969 episode, <clears throat> you know that I'm a stand for Fred Hampton. If, if we even call it that. So I appreciate this movie because it depicted Fred Hampton. And I also appreciate the fact that it was that like it was casted brilliantly. 
for the most part. Martin Sheen was a little bit odd, but it was casted brilliantly. It was shot extremely well. Like the movie was well done, like very well done. Ryan Coogler, the rest of the team did a great job with this movie. Like just from a cinematography standpoint, the acting was amazing. Like they killed it. Like they really did a great job with this movie. It was a, it, so I'll, I'll say it was a, it was a great movie and it was appropriately titled Judas and the Black Messiah. That was the title of the movie. And that's exactly what the movie was about. It was about Bill O'Neill, William O'Neill, who was the person who gave the feds, the FBI and the Chicago Police Department, the information they needed to ultimately assassinate Fred Hampton. Because that, and that's actually what the movie was about. So as a fan of Fred Hampton, I could only like it to the extent that Fred Hampton was in it and just also just appreciate that this story of William O'Neill brought this brought Fred Hampton to this huge platform in terms of how widely publicized this movie is and how and how and how star studded the cast was and, and, and the directing and the production. Like it was a great movie. So I appreciate that part of it. But I can't like it as much as I wish I could like it. Because it's like, you know, if you follow Jesus or you're a Christian or whatever, like would you love a movie that was about Judas and didn't talk about Jesus's birth and most of Jesus's acts and all that? Like it, all it talked about was a couple of, it talked about Jesus, it talked about Judas's life, you know, where he came from and, you know, all the things that led to him, you know, eventually, you know, betraying Jesus. And it only showed Jesus enough to let you know that his death was important, but it wasn't about Jesus. Like if there was a movie like that that came out as a Christian, you'd be like, Oh wow, like I don't really know all that much about Judas. But dang, like I really wish they talked more about Jesus because Jesus was great. Like, why didn't they do more with Jesus? And I guess the sensitivity might not be as prevalent in that example because so many people know so much about Jesus. And like, I mean, obviously if you're a Christian, you're in church and you're listening about him, reading about him in the Bible like all the time. So you you know plenty about Jesus. Fred Hampton killed at 21 years old, not talked about in history classes, he does not have the coverage that Jesus has. And he is absolutely deserving of significant coverage. So for me, I like the movie, but I wish there was a movie of this caliber about Fred Hampton. And and le- like let's not let's not be you know vague about this. This movie was not a biopic on Fred Hampton. It was not a movie about the Black Panther Party self-defense. It was about William O'Neill. Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party were side pieces to a story about William O'Neill. <laughs> so, I mean, that's just that's just what it is. So, I appreciate the film. I think it was well done. But I could only like it as much as a Christian would like a movie about Judas. <laughs> Because it's like, I mean, uh, I don't know. That's where I'm at with it. So, yeah. So, I know it's been a while since my last episode, but I, I appreciate the patience. And as you can tell, there's a lot that's been going on with me, um, both personally and, you know, just just in the world, there's been a lot going on. So, 
you know, I appreciate y'all rocking with me. Oh, before I go, though, the song I'm rocking to right now, I'm going to say two songs because the song that honestly I'm listening to heavy right now is another Michael Kiwanuka song, which I know I already used Michael Kiwanuka in a, in a song that I'm rocking to. So I've used Michael Kiwanuka twice and I've used Big Crit twice. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> but Michael Kiwanuka, I'm a black man in a white world, is just on repeat for me right now. And that's also partly, I'm reminded of this because on February 12th of 2020, I attended the last concert that, I, that I've attended in my life at this point because COVID happened, you know, all the shutdowns happened shortly after that, a month after that. So the last concert I went to was seeing Michael Kiwanuka at Lincoln Theater in D.C. on, on uh, February 12, 2020. And, yo, that was a phenomenal, phenomenal show. Michael Kiwanuka, as I've said earlier on other podcasts, he's one of my favorite artists. You know, I love that man. I love the music he's doing. And I love that he got a lot of credit, you know, in the British uh, awards system over the summer. Um, but, yeah, so <laughs> on, the, on the anniversary of my last concert, which happens to be Michael, Michael Kiwanuka, you know, a song I'm rocking too heavy right now is um, I'm a Black Man in a White World by Michael Kiwanuka. I'll also throw out there two other songs. I know I don't normally do this, but I'm going to throw out two other songs. One is Bob Marley's I Shot the Sheriff because, hey, I already mentioned that joint. And, like, I mean, hey, like, and really I could have pl- plugged any Bob Marley song right now, like, you know, just because he's so relevant. I mean, I love uh, pa- um, Pass It On. It's, like, one of my favorite songs ever. Actually, that might be one or two of my favorite songs like ever ever um but then the other song that i that i would say i'm rocking to right now um you know obviously like you know valentine's day around the corner whatever um you know i say Wizkid and her smile i know that sounds a little bit old now but like that song just got a vibe to it and i just i love that song that song is just my my feel good song right now i know i got a lot of heavy songs that i listen to but but I gotta, I gotta have some Wizkid and her smile just to kind of, just to kind of have some brightness to to the to the season in this time. Cause you know, if I can't dance, it's not my revolution. So, yeah, that's where I'm at. Anyway, I appreciate y'all fitting me into the day today. You can find me at, on Instagram at Real Adult. That's R E A L D A D U L T. Thank you for rocking with me. I hope to catch you here next time. Until then, be safe, be well, peace.